welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Our scripture reading this morning comes first from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus quotes and comments on passages from the Old Testament. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We read the same words again in a different setting in Luke's Gospel. As we read, on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Thank you, John. Thank you, John, and good morning, everybody, again. As, uh, oh, thank you very much, that's nice. Um, uh, well, we're in our second week uh, of Vision Sunday. And uh, first week we did, Dave's already done this with you, but we talked about becoming, our vision to become flourishing communities of hope, transformed by God's love, following Jesus and serving in God's world. And this week we're talking about the mission. Now we introduced that last week, uh, but we're going to unpack that a whole lot more. So the mission is being and making disciples who love God, love people, and serve in God's mission to our communities and the world beyond. Now, just like last week, we had a shortened version to help us remember it. The shortened version of the mission is being and making disciples who love and serve. And I hope you'll start to get those things. Uh, last week, I think we've got them all as well. They're not on your chairs, but we gave out little cards. They'll be down on the, uh, the front desk there. Really handy little cards. It's got the vision and the mission pocket size so you can stick in your wallet or your purse or on your fridge so just to help you. Now often what I do is I recap a previous message and I go through and I just hit the highlights. I'm not going to do that this morning for Vision Sunday Part 1 because I want to encourage you if you're new and you didn't hear it and even if you were here and you heard it, have a listen to the podcast. Not, not because it's my voice in any way but because I believe this is what God's calling us to. And to hear it a couple of times is helpful to start to embed it in our minds. So go and have a listen to the podcast. But today we're going to get stuck into this mission statement. And it starts off talking about being disciples. If you've been around church world for a while, you're probably thinking, okay, I know this, we've got this, being disciples, heard this one before, right? So I'm going to be sort of brief, but I want to make a few key points. First of all, what does disciple mean? It means learner. Or probably a better translation for us these days is apprentice. Uh, Because in Jesus' day, a disciple was someone who followed somebody to learn from them, but more than that, 
they actually tried to put it into practice. So I've made my own little definition of disciple. And how do you how do you like this one? They are learners from and doers of the teachings of the one they follow. And as I thought about that, I thought there's a key component here that sometimes I miss, which is that being a disciple is dynamic. It's changing. It's being open to change as we go along our life's journey and putting those things into practice. Now, I have an uncle who... I have a number of uncles, so if I ever use uncle stories, it's not always the same guy, right? I've got a number of uncles. Uh, I've got an uncle who was an elite cyclist, very, very good cyclist. Um, In fact, he's still, he's well into his 70s now and he still cycles around. He he does a whole postal, posty route and all sorts of things. Amazing guy. Anyway, um, I got into cycling for a bit and I saw that sometimes the, the people that really impressed me were the guys who are on their bikes. Now, if you've ever ridden a bike, you'll, you'll understand this. If, it doesn't, if you haven't, then it might be a bit tricky. But when you're riding a bike, not a fixed bike, but you're riding your bike and you stop, yeah, if you just stop, you're going to fall off, right? If you're a really good rider, a lot of good riders get these things called clipless pedals, which means actually you can't get your foot off the pedal. They're stuck on. It gives you better better traction, better transfer. So if you're riding along and you stop with these clipless pedals and you're just learning and you forget to like wrench it out, you fall over. But there are some people that I saw that would come up to a set of lights and they would stay with their feet clipped into the pedals and they sort of slightly turn their wheel and they managed to balance and they just rocked it. Have you ever seen that? I I tried to find it on Google, I couldn't. But anyway, there's these these people who can just stand there on lights. So the lights are there, you wait for 30 seconds, and they don't fall over. It's amazing. And then light goes green and off they go. And so I said to my uncle, elite cyclist, so how long does it take to learn to do that? And he said, oh, that's probably something you can learn your second year of cycling. And I thought about that for a second. I said, well, hang on. I know a lot of people who've been cycling for 10 years, and they can't do that. And then he said something that I've never forgotten. He said, ah, Peter, they've only been cycling one year. It's just their 10th time. And I thought, that is so interesting. Disciples learn and we're open to actually continuing to change. So as we think about this idea of being on a discipleship journey, there are lots of things that we are called to do. But in our mission statement, we've embedded three key things. And so we're going to go through each of those. And the first one is love God. Love God and understand his love for us. Now, is that a choice or a feeling? Love God. I think it's both. I think it's both. And I'm going to talk a bit about the choice bit first. The Bible tells us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And in many ways, that's a choice, a choice to love God. How do we do that? What does it look like? And again, many of you will know this, but let me run through them. Some of the things are choosing to spend time with God, talking to God and listening to God. That's called praying. Choosing to spend time with God by reading what he has sent us in his word, the Bible. So that's one area that we can choose to spend time with God. That's part of how we can choose to love him. We also choose to obey him if we love him 
In John 14, 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, he didn't say that because he was on a power trip. He said that because he knew that God's commandments for us are the best way for us to live. So out of his love, he says, obey. Obey what I've asked you to do. So there's spending time with God, there's obeying him, and there's worshipping him. Later on this year, we're going to do a series on worship, and I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to spend a few weeks just talking about worship. And we do it each Sunday. But I wanted to share with you just a little insight I got from a pastor, a theologian from last century, a guy called Edmund Cloney. And he looked at the Exodus story. So this is where the Israelites got taken out of Egypt. And we often focus on the freedom bit. They come out of slavery and they're free. He focused on what they were saved to. And he said this, he said, God demanded of Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. That's Exodus chapter 7 verse 16. And Cloney goes on, God brings them out that he might bring them into his assembly to the great company of those who stand before his face. God's assembly at Sinai is therefore the immediate goal of the Exodus. God brings his people into his presence that they might hear his voice and worship him. I found that fascinating. This Exodus story, this great salvation process, what was it for? So that the people could worship God and be in the assembly of people who hear his voice. So choosing to love God, spending time with him, obeying him, worshipping him. But there's also the feeling part. And I think that's deeper and more personal. If you, if you love somebody, it's quite deep and personal. It's not something that's necessarily the same across the board. It it ebbs and flows a little bit. And so maybe this morning you're here thinking, oh yeah, I've got this great feeling. I know God loves me. And I feel really good about that. It's wonderful. Or maybe you're in a season where, where you've had that. You've felt that. But, you know, now it's, I know that in theory, but it's sort of faded a little. It's just not quite up there, I'm more down here. Or, or maybe this morning you're in a season that's really hard and you're wrestling and you're asking questions. Those questions that I think in our lives we will all go through. Why? God, if you really loved me, how, how could you allow this to be happening to me or, or this to be happening to somebody that I love? Well, I've got good news and bad news, particularly for those people in that last category. Uh, bad news first, get that out of the way. I probably don't have the answer. In fact, there might not be anybody who's got the answer to your question. And, this is continuing the bad news, it's highly probable that you might stay in that feeling for a little while because those deep feelings take time. But there is good news. There is good news and here it is. The good news is that regardless of your questions... Regardless of how you feel, God does love you. And it's not an abstract love, it's a deep, personal love. How do, I, how do I know this? Why do I make this comment? Well, there are three magnificent words at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. In the English Standard Version, three words. You see, the people of Israel are being oppressed. 
and they're in this slavery and they're hating it and they're groaning and they're crying out and they're saying, God, why? If you're a loving God, how could you allow this to happen? And then what are those three words? It says, and God knew. And God knew. And what I read in those three words is this, because I know the rest of the story. I get to read Exodus 3 and 4 and 5 and beyond. And I know that when the people cried out in their pain, God didn't immediately switch so that the people who were being oppressed are now the rulers and the Egyptians are, are under their rule. Because I bet that's what some of them would have wanted in their pain. God did not speak a word and suddenly overnight they all had a two-day weekend and enough money to buy Netflix subscriptions because that would have made them all completely happy, right? No. No, but God knew that he loved them and he had this plan for them. It might not have been exactly what they were thinking and hoping for, but in that phrase, God knew, we read God knew exactly where you're at where I'm at when we're going through a tough time and we know that he's got this plan of salvation for us. So however you're feeling about God this morning, I want to suggest to you that we are called to be disciples who love God and we can do so with faith and confidence that he loves us intimately. Let's move on to part two, love people. We're called to be disciples who love people. And here I want to clarify there is no sub-clause there is no sub-clause that says this. We're called to be disciples who love people that are not annoying. It's not that we're called to be disciples who love people that we get on with. Here's the theory. We're all made in God's image. Every one of us. We're all made in God's image. And so the theory is we are all people that we should love each other. Because the thing that gives us value is that we are made by God and in his image. Jesus said in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So thanks, John, for reading that for us. Why did we read the second bit? Well, here's why. Because I find myself frequently in agreement or in line with that expert in the law that we read about in Luke chapter 10. Who said, ah, yes, but who is my neighbor? You see, he's just repeated Jesus' own words. So he knows the theory. Like most of us know the theory. Love your neighbor as yourself. We all know that phrase. But he asks the question, who's my neighbor? Why? Well, well I think what he was trying to do, and I realize what I try to do subconsciously, is say, well, Jesus, there's actually this clause that goes after that phrase. And I just want to check that I'm okay using that clause and living by that clause. Have you ever spoken to a call centre person? I had the great privilege and pleasure of doing that multiple times this week. Realising that when you speak to the call centre person, usually it's because you've got a problem that really shouldn't be there, right? There's a subscription or there's something that should be working, it's just not. And sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating. And that is just the 17 minutes before you actually get to talk to them and you're on hold. And I realized partway through some of my calls with call center people that I'm not thinking of them as a person. They are just somebody who really should solve my problem quicker 
Or maybe there's somebody to just sort of vent my frustration at, even if I can logically recognise that they can't solve my problem. I need to speak to the manager or the manager's manager. Or it's just not going to work. Is that a trivial example? Not really. Because as I thought about this, I thought oh, I could use all sorts of examples. And this might be an example you think, well, that's a small thing, but it's small because I'm thinking about it wrong. That's still a person, and the way I talk to them should be different. Jesus' response to the expert in the law in Luke 10 was to give the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I bet you know. And in that parable, he addresses the question of who is my neighbour. And he's really clear. He says there really is no clause. Everyone's your neighbour. In fact, particularly anybody who's in need or vulnerable. How many times has that call centre person been yelled at before I talk to them? And Jesus also talks about how to love people generously. So I'm not going to go into the Good Samaritan, but have a read of it and just remember that we're called to be disciples who love people. Third one, we are called to serve in God's mission to our communities and the world beyond. Jesus calls his disciples and he tells them, you're going to be fishers of people. Stop fishing for fish, come and fish for people. He called them into a life of doing things for others. And as disciples, we're called to our whole hearts, our energy, our time, our resource to be reprioritized on God's mission. And so our mission statement has been chosen very specifically. It's to serve in God's mission in our communities and the world beyond. So let's talk about our communities. If you call Cary home, this is a place where we've been called on mission to the communities in and around Cary, to the colleges, to Timber, to Jump, to the Right Track Foundation. This is where we're called to serve. Lots and lots of churches serve in lots and lots of ways. This church is called to serve the communities that are brought in and around this amazing mission. At the same time, God's planted you in your neighbourhood and given you a mission there. He's planted you in your workplace, if that's not Kerry, and given you a mission there. And, and while I'm on this topic, I, I sort of want to tread a, a dual line to say, you're called to mission here if you call Kerry home, to serve in God's mission to our communities. But also, the horizon for many of you is huge. You know, we have business people in this congregation who travel internationally, serving in God's mission internationally. We've got people in jobs here who are shaping legislation and regulation, in charge of large corporations. We have people who are teachers and parents who are shaping the next generation. If I look at some of our alumni, so people that used to be part of either our congregation or our schools, we've got people that are serving in massive mega churches in the US, people that are serving in prestigious schools on the East Coast. We've got people who are working in Canberra in government offices. The list goes on. I'm just sort of scratching the surface here. The horizon is enormous for where God's mission is. Here's the important thing. He calls you and I into his mission, not our mission. And if you call Kerry home, he calls you into the mission of Kerry. Last week was fantastic, wasn't it? If you were here for commissioning for our mission, over 500 people 
well, actually 500 in here and 100 kids, 600 people gathered to talk about this year for Kerry. And we reach thousands of people in the community. So serving is this inextricable part of being a disciple, and that's what we're called into. A last note on this topic, though. I want to be really clear about this. That for us as a family, when we look at each other, we value service, but we don't value the person by their service. Let me repeat that. Your service is valued, but you're not valued by your service, if that makes sense. Really important point. Right, so we've covered being disciples who love God, love people, and serve in his mission. Part one. Part two, making disciples. Jesus' last word to his disciples were what we call the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to look it up. It's this grand call to go and make disciples. How are you going with that? Twice in the last few weeks, our house, dramatic music, was threatened by fire. And, and I've got a, a slide up here uh, of, uh, from my front door. And it always looks smaller and further away in a photo, doesn't it? But I can tell you that chopper felt like it was from about me to the front row away. It was loud. The fire was really close. And uh, I was reacting. My first reaction when there was a fire really close to the house was, is my family okay? And they were here at school, so it's like, okay, check. What about the house and my stuff? So managed to get home, looked at my stuff, figure out, you know, what do we actually want to pack? Do we want this? Do we want that? Make sure I've got the wedding photos for Helen. You know, all, all these sorts of things. What do we, what, and me, and me, honey, for us both. <laughs> Very important to have the wedding photos. Whew. Oh, did I save? I don't think I saved that. All right. Please pray for me later. Right, so I was focused on the stuff. I should have been focused on me and Helen. Um, and here's what I'd forgotten. In all of that, as it became clear that the fire wasn't going to uh, go through our house, the house was fine, I had this realisation that I never even thought to contact the neighbours. I didn't think about it. God's a God of second chances. So about a week later, there was another fire. And uh, this time, again, we're in the red zone, and this time we decided to evacuate because it was overnight. We thought, well, rather than wandering and sleeping and waking up every hour and checking the phone and do we need to evacuate, we thought, you know, we'll, we'll go. We'll just be safe. So we took the kids and we packed stuff up. But this time, I made an effort to connect with the neighbours. And as I reflected on that, I wondered what was different? What, what is it that made me take action? What are the vital ingredients of taking action? And I thought there were two things. The first was to have a clear conviction. In both instances, when the fire was threatening the house, I was clearly convinced that there was a fire, that we were in the danger zone, we were in the red zone, that there was an issue. I had a deep conviction and belief that there was an issue. Now, was it really going to get the house? I'm not sure, but there was clearly something going on in risk. Deep conviction. But the second thing that I didn't have the first time, I did have the second time, was a conscious choice about what was important. Let me rephrase that. A conscious choice about who was important. 
There was a different desire and sense in me to love, literally, my neighbours. There were plenty of excuses I could have used. They should have got a text, shouldn't they? Actually, I didn't get a text. I haven't figured that one out yet, but apparently I don't get texts when the fires come. If it's really close enough, the fireys will bang on the door, even if it's the middle of the night. They'll be fine. They might not listen to me anyway. Or my favourite excuse, which I'm going to try and make sort of funny, but maybe this was true, was if I go and talk to someone, then maybe there's like one less sock that I'll be able to get in my stuff. Maybe I won't choose the right cufflinks to take with me. Because that first time, honestly, I was more focused on my stuff than on other people. We're called to make disciples. And I believe that's an outflowing of our conviction about how much God loves us and his desire to reconcile the world to him, but also our love for other people and our choice to love them. So, our new mission statement, being and making disciples, being and making disciples who love God, love people, and serve in his mission to our communities and beyond. It's an exciting mission. It's a long-term mission. And at risk of overload, I want to introduce one other concept this morning. Each year we have a church theme we have a, a movement theme, which if you were here last week, was grat- is gratitude for 2019. Uh, the whole of Kerry is focused on gratitude. Fantastic. We also usually choose a church theme. Last year it was growing deeper. This year, the theme that we're going to have is called Follow Me. Very well aligned with this new mission statement. Because it's how Jesus in- invited his disciples into his mission. If you look in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, he says to Peter and Andrew, Come. Follow me. In Matthew 9, Mark 2 and Luke 5, he says to Matthew, follow me. And in John 1, he says to Philip, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. Great theme. But there's more. Wait, there's more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul also says this. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul also says, follow me as I'm following Jesus. And so this theme for this year in line with our mission is about us following Christ, but also saying to others, hey, come on this journey with me. Follow me because I'm following Christ and this is the right way to go. It's being and making disciples. And as we introduced earlier, the pastoral and discipleship elders, this is part of our whole process that we'll start working together. So, look, we've covered a lot this morning. Covered a lot. Um, Covered the theme, looked at its development, and I hope you're excited. Are you excited? Excellent. I I hope so. And I'm not going to do that Baptocostal thing where I ask you three times and we all get that rousing sort of slightly artificial cheer. I hope you're excited. I'm really excited. And if you're not, that's just fine. Because what I hope will happen is that as we move forward over the months and years, that the embers will turn into sparks, will turn into a fire, and that as a congregation, this is the mission that we will realise we are each on individually and collectively towards our mission of becoming flourishing communities of hope. But here's where I want to end. What did Jesus do? Just as people were getting hang of the mission and the vision, just as the crowds were gathering And starting to follow him. Why don't we read that together? In Luke chapter 14 verse 31, he says this to them. 
They're all following. He says, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile and is thrown out. Not really a marketing pitch. And I didn't, for brevity, read to you the paragraphs before where he made even more difficult comments about what it would cost to be a disciple. What is Jesus doing? Here's what I think Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying that the mission I'm calling you to is not a glossy phrase. It's a costly journey. But he's really explicit that the cost is worth it. He says to us, you need to figure out the magnitude of the benefit here because this journey, if you're doing it right, will get really hard and costly. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that Jesus did exactly this. That Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. He understood what he was doing, and he understood that it was going to be costly. A guy called David Platt's written a book. The book's called Follow Me. Good book for you to read this year if you're choosing to go with our theme. And uh, it's a really confronting book for comfortable, middle-class, modern Christians. In his introduction, he talks about this idea of cost and reward and discipleship. uh, And he says this, Follow me, Jesus calls. Two simple words that change everything. You'll never be bored. You'll always have purpose. You will never lack joy. All the good stuff, the benefits. But it will cost you. This is not an invitation to pray a prayer. It's a summons to lose your life. A call to die. A call to live. So we've been called into this mission of being and making disciples who love and serve. It's what we do in response to Jesus' call to follow me. It's exciting. But I expect it to be costly. I expect it to require deep change. And as I wondered how to close this time together, I thought, the question is, do I, Peter, do I have the courage and conviction to do that? And I'm not sure. And so the only answer I've got for you, I told you this is bad news, I don't have all the answers. You probably didn't expect that anyway. But I realised the thing I've got to do is pray. And what I wanted to ask you to join me in this morning as we close off, as we think about the exciting bits and realize there's a cost, I want us to pray together. And I'm going to join in. And here's how I'd like us to do that. As we pray for courage and conviction, as we pray for deeper understanding that God knows and God loves as we pray for the ability to choose to love others 
and that we would decide to serve in his mission. I want to encourage us to do that together. So I'm going to ask in a, in, a, in a few seconds for our pastoral and discipleship elders just to move out to the sides of the auditorium and, and our prayer team to perhaps move to the front. And I want to invite you, if you enjoy, if you would like to this morning, pray in a group. If you like praying out loud or you just like being in a group that's praying, come and join somebody. Sit in a circle, join those people. And, and usually I'm not afraid to say, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, now's the time to step out of the boat. But I don't want to say that this morning. Because this morning I don't want you to focus on the uncomfort that you might feel of trying to pray out loud or, you know, that's weird or whatever. Sit where you are, that's cool. I want you to just feel comfortable to pray for that courage and conviction. So that's what I'm going to suggest that we do. If you want to sit where you are, stay. If you want to pray in a group, let's move into groups. I'm going to come down and pray. I'm going to get the band to come on. Uh, Mike's just going to play a little bit of music underneath. And then in about five minutes, the band will lead us in worship song. And after that, Dave will come up and close. But I would love for us to be a family that prays together. And I really think that as we contemplate being on this mission of being and making disciples who love and serve, I need to pray for courage and conviction. And I wonder if you do too. Would you join me? Shall we pray together? Let's move just out to the sides. Pastoral elders, um, prayer team, if you want to just move out to the side. Move the chairs around. Feel free. And if you want to sit where you are, that's fine. Um, but let's just move around a little bit and let's pray together.